All right. Hello, Christ community. Greetings to our 15th Street campus and our West campus and our traditions venue. Glad all of you are here. Before we jump into the message, I wanted to take two minutes and highlight some important stuff coming up, some things that are on my heart. Obviously, this is a very spiritually significant week and season for us as a church. This coming week is Holy Week. We will be celebrating Good Friday and Easter service times for both of those events are in your newsletter or on a web on our web page, also on the invite card. All Easter service times, whether you're West or at 15th, are different next weekend, okay? All of them are different, so please make note of that. In both the Good Friday service and the Easter services, we're going to be continuing our journey um, in the book of Luke, looking at how Luke describes these two incredibly significant events, and we believe God is going to do some amazing things this next weekend. Um, we want all of you to be a part of that. Just a reminder for those of you who are coming to a service at 15th Street, usually the, the, uh, the 9.30 service on Sunday is the most attended, um, especially for people who are visiting the church. And so if you're able to attend one of our Saturday services or our 8 o'clock or 11 o'clock service on Sunday, that would be great. Also, if you're able to park at the Central High School lots, that would be help, helpful. Uh, parking is a challenge around this building, and, and we want to make sure that our visitors are able to find parking up close. So so thanks for that. And if you don't want to battle at all with parking, just go to one of our two services at our West Campus at Northridge High School. There is plenty of parking there. Um, now, now beyond Easter, there are a couple other things that I that I wanted to mention. One is a healing prayer training that Taylor Hendrickson and I are doing on Saturday morning, April 22nd from 8.30 to noon. And I'm super excited about this. If you want to grow in this ministry of how to pray for the sick, this seminar will be a practical guide to that. This is something that I want our church to continue to grow in. And so we encourage you to come. It's free. It's April 22nd, Saturday morning. It's free, but you do need to register online on the events page of our website. The other thing that's happening the week after that is a men's breakfast that I'm putting together at Zoe's on Saturday, April 29th. For several months, I have had something on my heart that I believe God wants me to share with any men who would be interested. It's a message about what it means to live with a whole heart. So many men that I talk to and that I meet with are struggling with, with anger or with connecting relationally or with addictions. And I believe God has a message for us as men. So men, right now, take out your phone, put this on your calendar, okay? 7 a.m. Saturday, April 29th at the Bel Air um, at Zoe's downtown. You don't need to sign up, but just show up. You do need to show up, okay? Um, there's information in the newsletter this week. We'll have breakfast burritos. Just bring a couple dollars to help um, pay for or the cost of, cost of those. That would be great. Okay, so that's my two minutes. So now, if you have your Bible or Bible app, feel free to turn to Luke chapter 23. We are journeying through this, this, this amazing book of Luke, which is an eyewitness-based account of Jesus' life. In this particular season, we have been focusing on 
the passages that describe the events leading up to the crucifixion. And so over the past few weeks, we have spent time looking at the Last Supper and the betrayal of Jesus and how Jesus is then abandoned by his disciples when he's arrested. And then last week, we looked at how Jesus faced horrible injustice at the hands of the religious leaders, which culminates in Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, proclaiming that Jesus is innocent and yet sentencing him to death by crucifixion. Now, crucifixion was not like a lethal injection, okay? Crucifixion was intentionally designed to be torture, to cause an excruciatingly slow, painful death. In fact, I just learned that the word excruciating, our English word excruciating, comes from the Latin word for cross, In a crucifixion, the victim's hands and feet were nailed to a cross, which was then hoisted up and dropped into a hole in the ground. The victim would then spend the next several hours, sometimes even days, fighting for every breath. Sometimes these crosses had a little seat to help support the weight of the victim, but not as a benefit to the person, but rather as a way to intentionally prolong their death. It is hard to imagine a more cruel, inhumane, agonizing death than crucifixion. And yet that is what Jesus is sentenced to endure. But it is no surprise to him. It is no surprise to him. Jesus has known all along that this is what his life is pointing towards. Jesus knew that his primary purpose in his time on earth was focused on the cross, which means that if we want to know who Jesus is, and, if we, and, and what he came to do, if we want to fully experience him in our lives, it is critical that we understand exactly what the cross is all about. I recently read an interview with Madonna, uh, who was talking about her, her most recent album, and the interviewer noticed that she was wearing a cross. Madonna was wearing a cross, and so he asked her about that, and this is what she said. She said, I like crosses. I'm sentimental about Jesus on the cross. Jesus was a Jew, and also I believe he was a catalyst, and I think he offended people because his message was to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, no one is better than somebody else. He embraced all people, whether it was a beggar on the street or a prostitute. And he admonished a group of Jews who were not observing the prophets of the Torah. So he rattled a lot of people's cages. Now, there's a lot of truth. There is a lot of truth in what Madonna is saying about Jesus' message of love and how he embraced all people and yet rattled the cages of some religious leaders. All of that is right on. But in her answer... It is evident that she actually misses the heart of the cross. She misses what the cross is intended to say to her personally. And I think a lot of people are like that. We know the cross represents what Jesus experienced. We may feel some sentimentality about the cross and wear some jewelry or have a tattoo with a cross. But do we truly understand what the cross is intended to say to us personally? Now, in the passage that we're looking at today in Luke 23, as Jesus is walking towards and then experiencing the cross, there are three specific things that he says 
that clarify the purpose of the cross. And each one of them is vitally important for us to understand and embrace if we want to live in the fullness of what Jesus has done for us. So let's look beginning in verse 26 of Luke 23. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and they put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the, child, the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us and, the, and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now, this is not an easy passage to understand. In fact, I think this is why Mel Gibson, in his Passion of the Christ movie, if you've seen that, I think this is why he added a line here where Jesus looks at Mary and he says, I am making all things new. It was such a powerful moment. The problem is Jesus didn't say that, okay? He, at least not then. He, he says it later in the book of Revelation, which is really, really cool. He promises to make all things new. But from the eyewitness sources that we have, from the people who were actually there when Jesus walked this road, Jesus didn't say those words. What he did say was this. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Because a time is coming when things are going to be so horrible that you will wish you never had children so that they wouldn't have to experience what you're experiencing. That's what Jesus is saying. So what is he talking about? He's talking about God's judgment that's going to be poured out on Jerusalem, that was going to be poured out on Jerusalem. Just a week earlier on Palm Sunday, as Jesus was approaching the city, he began to weep. Luke talks about this. He began to, to weep. And he basically says, as he's approaching Jerusalem, he says of Jerusalem, if you guys, if you had only known what would bring you peace, but instead you've rejected me and the result is going to be horrible. Jerusalem will be attacked and destroyed, you and your children will be killed. And that's exactly what happened in AD 70. Jerusalem was surrounded by Roman armies and destroyed as an expression of God's judgment upon the people of Israel for rejecting Jesus. Now, many believe also that these words of Jesus also refer to the final judgment that's coming, where God will pour out his wrath upon sin, as also described in the book of Revelation, the day of the Lord. So some believe that it's referring to that as well. Okay, but here's the point. So here, here is Jesus. Think about this. Here is Jesus in the midst of incredible physical agony as his body had been beaten and his skin is all torn up and he's trying to carry his cross. It's too heavy, so they ask, they seize another guy to carry his cross. So, so he's not even able to carry the cross for himself. That's the physical condition he's in. And these women, these women are weeping for him. And as they're weeping for him, he redirects their focus to the reality of God's judgment. This is so counterintuitive. This is so countercultural. It doesn't make any sense to us, which is why we need to pay attention to it. Because, because Jesus is saying he's something here that doesn't fit very well into our cultural understanding of God. 
And here's, here's what he's saying. Jesus doesn't want us feeling sorry for him. He doesn't want us feeling sorry for him. He, he, he doesn't want us to feel compassion for his suffering on the cross. No, no, no. What he wants is for us to look honestly at our own lives before a holy God. See, before anything else, the cross clearly speaks of the judgment of God. It speaks of the judgment of God. Before anything else, the cross speaks of this. God is absolutely holy. He is, he is perfect. He is complete. He is just. He is deserving of our absolute obedience. He is worthy of our wholehearted worship. I mean, can we, can we all agree with this, this idea? If there is a being, if there is a being who created us and created the universe, right? If that is true, then that being deserves our allegiance, right? He, he deserves that we do whatever he wants us to do. But guess what? We don't do that, do we? We don't perfectly obey him. We're not even close. We do our own thing. We don't worship him. We don't trust him with all of our heart. No, we worship and place our trust in all sorts of other things, in money and, and in sex and in power and, and our own ability. I mean, are we getting the picture here? There is a holy God who created us and deserves our worship and allegiance, but we have chosen to not give him that. We have chosen to not give him that. So what does a holy God have every right to do to his creation who doesn't, any of his creation who, who don't give allegiance to him, who don't follow him, who rebel against him. He has every right to judge them, to punish them, to pour out judgment upon them. Not an evictic, not a vindictive judgment, a holy judgment to give them what they deserve. It is a holy judgment. Now, People hear this, and maybe some of us here, we hear this and we think, how, that's what I don't like about this Christianity stuff, how, how could a loving God judge people? Now think about that question. Think about that question for a moment. How would we feel, how would you feel about a judge who lets guilty people off the hook? How would you feel about a judge who, who lets the Sandy Hook Elementary School murderer, shooter guy go free? How would you feel about a judge like that? Is that what we want? Is that what we want? Do we really want a God who isn't just? Of course not. <laughs> of course not. That kind of God would be a moral monster welcoming, you know, Hitler into the fold without any qualms about that. I mean, deep down, we all long for a God of justice. Deep down, all of us long for a God of justice, a God who will punish Sex traffickers and pornographers and ISIS members and terrorists. What we don't want is a God who will judge us. That's what we don't want. We don't want a God who will pour out judgment upon us for our disobedience and our worship of other gods. We don't want that. We, we, we don't want to admit that we deserve his judgment. It's not socially acceptable to talk about a God like that. But folks, Jesus points us to a God like that. Jesus wants us to face the reality of God's judgment upon all of us. We all deserve his judgment, every one of us. Now see, without this understanding, without this understanding, the cross makes absolutely no sense. 
Really, without this understanding, the cross makes absolutely no sense. Why would Jesus die on the cross? Well, some, some people will say, well, he, he died to be an example. Well, great. An example of what? I mean, an example of what? Imagine, imagine two lovers walking along a river at night. And the, and the guy says, this is how much I love you. And he jumps in the river and drowns. That would not be an example of love. That's stupidity. Okay. That is not an example of love just because he dies. That's stupidity. But let's say they're walking along the river and she falls in and begins to drown. And he jumps in to rescue her and he loses his life in the process. He gave his life for her. See, that's a sacrifice that has meaning. Why would Jesus voluntarily die on the cross? There's only one reason that makes any sense. It's not just to be an example. There's only one reason that makes sense. On the cross, God poured out his holy wrath upon our sin. And Jesus was the one who took the full weight of that upon himself. Jesus took upon himself the punishment, the full punishment, the holy wrath of God that you and I deserve. And he did it voluntarily. He did it voluntarily. He chose this for us. See, when we minimize the reality of God's judgment, we miss the point of the cross. We're left with a Madonna response, you know, feeling sentimental about the cross, feeling sorry for Jesus for what he went through. But Jesus doesn't want us feeling sorry for him. He doesn't. He doesn't want us feeling sentimental about the cross. He wants us to face the fact that the cross vividly shows us exactly what we deserve. It shows us exactly what we deserve. The cross shows us the terrifying and very real judgment of God upon our sin. We dare not miss this truth about the cross or we will miss the point of the cross. But there's more, there's more that this cross reveals. Look with me at the beginning of verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with Jesus to be executed. When they came to a place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. So Jesus is nailed to a cross. He's nailed to the cross. And then that cross is lifted up, like I said before, and it dropped into a hole in the ground. And, and while he hangs there with the people watching, there are two groups of people that actually begin to mock him. The religious leaders jump in first. They didn't speak directly to Jesus, but they spoke to each other. If he really is the Messiah... He could save himself, right? He saved others. Why can't he save himself if he's the chosen one, right? They're having this, this conversation loudly enough for others to hear. Then the soldiers get in on the action. The, the soldiers do the same. But they, they, Luke tells us that they go up to Jesus and they speak to him, directly to him. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now, 
It is no coincidence. It is no coincidence that these people, the people who are saying these things are people in power. These are people in power. The religious leaders had religious power and influence, and the soldiers had military power. But both of them are mocking Jesus. Now, here's the, here's the irony. The irony is the, the primary subject of their mocking, do you notice? The primary subject of their mocking is the issue of salvation. That's the word they use three times. Three times in these verses, the word save is used. The, the word save here is the Greek word sozo. It means to deliver, to rescue, to make whole. So the soldiers and the religious leaders were mocking Jesus about salvation. <laughs> That's what they're mocking about. Why can't he save himself? And here's what was going on. In the minds of the religious leaders, the true Messiah was supposed to be able to save himself. He was supposed to demonstrate military power. He would come and overthrow the Roman government. I mean, this is the wisdom of the world, right? This is the wisdom of the world. Power is how change happens. Power is how rescue comes. I mean, the whole evolutionary theory is based upon power. Survival of the fittest. There is no moral compass for evolution. It is whoever has the most power. They determine the fate of others. I mean, Nazi Germany is a vivid picture of what an evolutionary approach to humanity looks like. Exterminate those who aren't in power. If you don't like them, those you don't like very much, just exterminate them. Because you have more power. See, the, the wisdom of the world is all about demonstrating power over others. And that's what these mockers were ultimately deriding Jesus for, his lack of power. He wasn't doing anything. That's what they were mocking him for. Now, I want us to look again at what Jesus said as he was being crucified. L look at this, verse 34. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They don't know what they're doing. They think they are so strong and powerful, but they don't know what they're doing. They don't know who they're up against, which highlights a second reality that the cross so vividly communicates, and that is the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God. In the eyes of the world, in the eyes of the most powerful people and the influential people, the cross was utter foolishness. Seriously, in the eyes of the world, it is utter foolishness. It was a despicable show of weakness. He can't even save himself. The religious leaders were giddy. They finally defeated this Jesus guy. He's been driving them nuts for months and months. They finally got him. And the forces of hell were rejoicing. The son of God, their nemesis for the past few years is near death, Right? Things seem to be looking good from a worldly and a demonic perspective. Things look great for them in terms of power. But from God's vantage point, this was all according to plan. <laughs> this was all according to plan. Their angry, vengeful action to crucify Jesus fit right into God's plan that he had been orchestrating from the beginning. And that's a whole other sermon about Genesis and Exodus and all these indicators in the Old Testament that point exactly to God's plan. I love how, how, how Paul, the Apostle Paul, articulates this in his first letter to the Corinthians. Look at this. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness 
to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy, this is God speaking, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where are the wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. I mean, what an incredible description of what happened on the cross. Really, I mean, this is what happened on the cross. To those in power, Jesus on the cross looked foolish. He looked weak. They had, they had no idea what God had up his sleeve. As, as, think about this. As they mocked Jesus for not being able to save himself, he was in the process of providing salvation for billions of people. <laughs> as they were mocking him for not being able to save himself, he was actually providing salvation for billions of people. Genius. This is genius. They thought they were winning, and they weren't. The cross shows so powerfully the amazing, awesome, brilliant wisdom of God. The plan that God was orchestrating all along, they didn't see it. They played right into his hands. <laughs> he provided salvation right under their nose. But there's one more aspect of the cross that's revealed in this passage. Look with me, beginning verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is such a beautiful encounter between Jesus and one of the criminals being crucified alongside of him. I mean, this is amazing. The context is amazing. Now, the other criminal or two criminals um, crucified beside Jesus. The other criminal, like the soldiers and the religious leaders, was mocking Jesus, demanding that Jesus save himself and him, right? But this criminal was not doing that. In fact, this criminal rebuked the other one for saying those things about Jesus. And in, and in his rebuke, we see a very different thing than the mocking of the others. Verse 40, 41, the criminal says, we are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. This is amazing. He's, he's not justifying himself. He's not minimizing his sin. I don't deserve this. I need a lawyer or whatever. He's not claiming his innocence or making demands of Jesus. No, no, no. He is fully owning the punishment he's receiving. He's fully owning the justice that's being dispensed upon him. I deserve this. I'm getting what I deserve. And then he says, Jesus, remember me. Remember me when I come into your kingdom. And, and Jesus says to him, the most beautiful, powerful words ever uttered to a human being. 
Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. See, this man, this thief on the cross, this man experiences the most incredible gift of all, the gift that the cross so vividly points to, and that is the grace of God. The grace of God. In addition to the cross showing the judgment of God and the wisdom of God, it also powerfully displays the incredible grace of God towards sinners like you and me. Towards sinners like you and me. So what exactly is grace? I talk about the grace of God. What exactly is grace? A lot of times we use grace and mercy synonymously, but the meanings are actually a little different from each other. So let me, let me illustrate. Mercy is getting pulled over by a policeman for speeding and not getting a ticket. Okay, you get a warning, not a ticket. That's mercy. You deserved a ticket for speeding, but you didn't get one. Grace is when that same police officer then buys you a latte at Starbucks. Okay, that's grace. See, grace includes mercy, but is so much more than that. Grace is undeserved favor. Jesus didn't simply say to the criminal, I forgive you. I forgive your sins, which is clearly implied here. He did. But that would would have been mercy alone. That would have been a mercy. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. That's grace. That is grace. The grace of a relationship with Jesus forever. See, notice a very important word here. It's easy to skip over. Notice the word with. Do you notice that what Jesus says? With. It's so important. You will be with me in paradise. The invitation of the cross, the invitation of the cross is not to a life of rigid obedience to a bunch of rules. And if that's the Christianity you think, that's what you think Christianity is, you're missing it. The invitation of the cross is not to this this life of rigid obedience to to a bunch of rules trying to earn God's approval. No, no, no. The invitation of the cross is an invitation into a life with God. The invitation of the cross is an invitation to a life with God, a life in relationship with God, where yes, he forgives our sin, that's mercy, but he does so much more than that. He comes to live in you. He promises you the joy of eternity in his presence. That is grace, grace, grace. That's all grace. Undeserved favor, an abundance of God's favor being poured out upon us. Jesus died on the cross to take upon himself the judgment of God that we deserved for the purpose of fulfilling God's amazing plan, plan of wisdom, right? In order to have a people for himself whose sins are forgiven and in whom the very presence of Jesus dwells. That's the offer of salvation that the cross makes possible. That's the offer. So how do we receive this? How do we receive this grace? It's amazing, right? Undeserved favor like that. How do we receive this? How do we enter into this amazing relationship with God? Well, this passage shows us, in fact, this passage actually shows us how to miss God's salvation and how to find it. How to miss God's salvation and how to, how to find it. So let's talk first about how, do we, how, do you, how to miss God's salvation. Here's how to miss God's gift of salvation. Be like the religious leaders. Right? That, that's exactly how to miss it. Be like the religious leaders. These guys, remember, they were standing near the cross. They were yard, just yards away. They were standing near the cross. They saw Jesus die, but they didn't think they needed a savior. 
They didn't need what he was offering. They didn't think they needed a savior, right? They were trusting, like the religious leaders did, they were trusting in their own effort, their own moral goodness. Look at me, I pray all the time and I give money away. They were trusting in their own church attendance. They were trusting in their own giving record. They were trusting in their own ability to follow God's laws. Again, they were within a few yards of Jesus and yet they totally missed the salvation he offered. And folks, there are a boatload of people in the same category. A boatload. Maybe some of you here. You're familiar with Jesus. You know he died on the cross. But deep down, deep down, you think that having a relationship with God is about you cleaning up your life. It's about you cleaning up your life. I'm going to stop swearing. And I'm going to start going to church. And I'm going to get baptized. And I'm going to start living right. And man, and then God will accept me. Look, all of those things may be really, really good things. But they will not save you. None of them will save you. None of them will save you. When we think God accepts us based on our sincerity or our good effort, what we're really doing is this. We're trying to be our own savior. We're trying to save ourselves. We're trying to be our own savior. Now, now follow me here. If, if we could save ourselves through cleaning up our lives, if we could save ourselves through good behavior, then Jesus didn't need to die on the cross. The cross was a waste of time. If we could could just make ourselves better and get God's acceptance that way, the cross was a total waste of time, but it wasn't a waste of time. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus took our sin. He took the judgment we deserved. He died in our place to offer us this gift. Okay, so that's how not to receive it, by cleaning up your life, trying to make yourself better and earn your acceptance. That's not the way. If that's not the way, how do, how do we receive it? Well, the thief on the cross shows us, <laughs> right? The thief on the cross shows us. First of all, what's he do? He admits that he's guilty. He admits that he is getting the judgment he deserves. That's the first step in receiving the gift of salvation. It's called, the, uh, the Bible word for it is, is repentance. It's this idea of repentance. Admit that you've sinned against God. Admit that you deserve his judgment. It doesn't matter how horrible your past, how shameful your sins. It doesn't matter how long you've ignored God. It doesn't matter. No sin is too large for God to forgive. But the first step, the first step to that is admitting you're guilty before God, before a holy God. The second step, look by faith to Jesus. Look by faith to Jesus. The thief looked to Jesus. He didn't do anything else. He just looked to Jesus. Remember me, he said. Remember me. In, in that statement, he, he, he realizes that Jesus is holy and that Jesus is his only hope. He says, remember me. See, here, here's the deal. Salvation is not about your effort. It's not about your behavior. It's not about your goodness. It's about placing your trust in Jesus' work on the cross. See, it's not about what you do. It's about what he has done. It's not about what you do or I do. It's about what he has done. It is finished. The work is done. He did all the heavy lifting. All he asks is that you admit your need and then place your trust in him. When you do that, when you do that, you receive, just like the thief on the cross, you receive this amazing gift of salvation. 
the forgiveness of your sins and the loving presence of the Spirit living in you forever. Please, folks, don't miss, don't miss the full meaning of the cross for you. It is not simply a religious symbol to wear around your neck. And, and its purpose is not to promote this sentimental response of pity upon Jesus, feeling sorry for him. No, 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 no. It is God's offer to you of a completely new way of living. A life with God forever. Don't miss out. Don't miss out on this incredible gift he has for you. Let's pray together. There's some, some of you right here in this moment, and you know that is exactly what God is asking you to do. Maybe you've ignored God for years. Maybe you've done your own thing. Maybe this is the first time it's actually making sense to you. That it's not about your effort. It's not about your goodness. It's not about how bad or how good you have been. It is not about any of that. It is all about what Jesus has done on the cross. It's a gift. You don't work for a gift. You receive a gift. And there are some of you here, and you know it's time to say yes to Jesus. You know it's time. You long for this with God life that he invites you into. You long for your sins to be forgiven and for his grace to be poured out in a relationship with him that is eternal, that's forever, a love relationship. So if that's you, it doesn't matter how young you are, it doesn't matter how old you are, if that is you, I want to lead you in a prayer right now where you can open your heart and receive this gift of salvation. So if that's you, please pray along with me in the silence of your heart. Don't miss this moment. Just pray along with me in the silence of your heart. Dear God, you are holy. You are creator. You are perfect in all of your ways and your being. You are perfect. And I'm not. I have not followed you very well. I've not trusted you. I've not worshiped you. I've run after all sorts of other things. And I realize there is nothing I can do to get to you. You're holy and I'm not. I, there's nothing I can do to earn my way, no matter how hard I try to clean up my life. It's not going to work. I deserve your judgment. But even though there was nothing I could do to get to you, you came to me. You sent your son, Jesus, to live a perfect life. And then, Jesus, you on the cross, you took upon yourself my judgment, the judgment I deserve, the punishment I deserve for my sin. You died in my place. Thank you for doing that for me. And I acknowledge my sin. I acknowledge that I'm deserving of your judgment and I choose right now to place my trust in you, Jesus. I bring you my faults and my failures and my doubts and my questions and fears and sins, all of that. I just bring it all to you and I place it on you, Jesus. And in exchange for that, I receive your life and your forgiveness and your very presence living in me. Change me from the inside out. Holy Spirit, change me from the inside out. 
So God, I want to pray for anyone who prayed that prayer. I pray, thank you, Lord, for the salvation that they've received. I pray they would grow in this relationship with you. You would truly change them through the power of your love, not rules and all that. It's through the power of your love. I pray that you would transform the, their hearts. You promise, give them a new heart. Help them grow in that, Lord, in this with God life that you invite us into. Help them grow in that. Thank you that you're with them no matter what. You are with them forever. And if, if that's you, if you prayed that prayer, I encourage you, tell someone. Go up to one of our intercessors after the service or tell someone you came with. Tell a friend, Facebook a friend or whatever. Just let someone know about the decision that you've made because it changes everything. And for, for the rest of us here who we, we've placed our trust in Jesus, we know, we, we, you know we, he lives in us. I want to pray for us that we would more fully live in the wonder of the cross, the grace that is extended to us. It's not about our, our, our effort. It's about his grace, undeserved favor poured out. And I, I, God, thank you for pouring out your grace. We don't deserve it. And you keep piling it on. And we're so grateful for this with God life that we can experience. It's not dependent upon our behavior. It's all dependent upon the cross. Lord, when we think, oh, I've messed up. I'm a Christian, but I've messed up. And, you know, the enemy comes in and starts saying, oh, you can't be a Christian. God couldn't love you. That's all. Those are all lies. Jesus paid for the with God life on the cross. It's ours. So I pray that we would live in that, in the fullness of that. More and more, that the cross would be at the center of how we live our lives. Thank you, Jesus for choosing to go to the cross for us and for the grace that we experience because of that. So we have an awesome opportunity to express and respond to what we've heard by partaking of the Lord's Supper. And so in just a moment, the worship team is going to be le begin leading us in worship. And whatever campus you're at, uh, we encourage you during that worship time, sometime during that worship time, go up to a table, take a piece of bread, which represents Jesus' body given for you on the cross, and dip it in the cup of juice, which represents his blood shed for you. And then you can partake right there, or you can go back to your seat and partake. But as we do that, let's remember the wonder of the cross, the judgment of God, the wisdom of God, and the grace of God that is ours because of Jesus. So why don't we stand? Let's stand. You can sit down at some point if you want, but let's begin standing. Jesus, thank you for your body given for us, your blood shed for us, the grace that is poured out on the cross, and we open our hearts afresh to receive all of that. We love you. Set us free to worship you, Lord.